You're listening to Radio Ed, the University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Emma Atkinson and Matt Meyer. What is Title 42? Over the past few weeks, you've likely seen the law referenced in headlines across various news sources. Depending on the journalistic outlet in question, the phrasing and context might be different. It's clearly associated with immigration, but there's a huge amount of mis- and disinformation. On today's Radio Ed season finale, we'll untangle some of the knotted narratives surrounding the 1944 public health law with the help of Rebecca Galemba, associate professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Glumber researches the intersections of globalization, illicit markets, migration, security, and labor in Mexico, Central America, and the United States. Simply put, Title 42 curbed immigration efforts into the U.S. in the name of protecting public health. Its technical title is an emergency health authority, and it was used heavily during World War II to turn away immigrants and asylum seekers. Title 42 was dusted off by the Trump administration during the coronavirus pandemic, and that administration applied it almost exclusively to the U.S.'s southern border. When Joe Biden was elected president, he kept the mandate in place, but worked to remove it during 2022. Republican opponents sued and courts upheld their challenge, but Title 42's application ended when Biden declared that COVID-19 was no longer a national emergency. Usually, asylum seekers are allowed to stay in the United States while their case is being reviewed. Under Title 42, they can be expelled immediately, sometimes directly into a dangerous situation or with criminal charges. I'll let Galemba take it from there. So Title 42 is actually a pretty old public health order from 1944, a really kind of arcane section of U.S. Code on Public Health and Welfare, which was used to basically expel almost all, with very few exceptions, migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border or the U.S. borders starting in the spring of 2020, ostensibly to combat the pandemic. But largely, you know, evidence shows this was largely used in order to implement particular immigration policies and limit access to asylum. You touched on this a little bit with Trump reinstituting this during the COVID pandemic and using it largely as a mechanism to turn away immigrants and folks seeking asylum. When did that shift occur? I would argue it's always been a political mechanism as an immigration enforcement tool. You know, even public health experts were coming out pretty early, even the CDC later on, of saying this wasn't really backed by science or warranted. Um, especially this became more obvious once we had appropriate measures in place to screen people, quarantine, vaccination. And you know, meanwhile, while you know this restriction is in place, there was still traffic going across the border, right? Of of businesses, of people who straddle their lives across the border, of commerce, you know, that really outstrip what the kind of threat was supposed to be from migrants crossing the border. And it's interesting because Biden campaigned on the promise to end this policy, largely responding to a lot of outcry, court cases, right, that this was in violation of not only international obligations under the Refugee Convention, but also our own domestic laws on immigration. And it's interesting to see, you know, despite his early attempts to end it, He actually ended up doubling down on it and expanding the populations that were subject to it before it just ended a couple of days ago. And this is perfect because you segue just right into my next question. Because we talked about Trump a little bit, and it's really easy to say, you know, like like Trump was a problem. His administration was a problem for immigration. But that's not to say that Biden's done any better. So I guess with, with his answer to this expiration, what are kind of some of the issues with his administration's policies and how they're handling people at the southern border? 
Right. And I, and I think there's been a lot of people have been angry and disappointed about the promises that Biden has made versus a lot of continuity and parallels to policies under Trump, albeit the rhetoric has obviously softened. So for example, we've seen Biden send 1500, you know, National Guard to the border, but they're not there for the kind of same militarized show. They don't have the same kind of um, authority that Trump gave him when he did something very similar. So there are, you know, these slight differences. There are other pathways that Biden has either discussed um, or has been opening. But I think that, you know, the two things that have people most concerned that could replicate exactly what we saw under Title 42 is one, the transit ban, which is something that I've been concerned on, which is very similar to a policy um, that Trump was proposing, which largely makes most migrants ineligible to request asylum at U.S. borders if they've transited through another country and not requested and been denied asylum first and attempt to enter in between ports of entry. And the kind of there's very rare, it seems to be very rare exceptions for that. Or migrants have to make an appointment with Customs and Border Patrol through an app. And there's been a lot of issues with that rollout. And those again who are, you know, deemed ineligible will be subject to expedited removal through um, what's called Title VIII, which was in place before. But a lot of the concern is speeding up that process with giving migrants very little avenues to try to claim protection when in reality, many of the people who've been entrapped by Title 42, before that by the migrant protection protocols, largely have protection claims. One of the answers has been the Biden administration saying, hey, Mexico is a safe place for migrants seeking asylum. But that's not always the case, correct? I, I agree. You know, first, it offloads U.S. responsibilities to asylum seekers. Um, this is what scholars call externalization of borders, and the U.S. isn't the only country that does this. We see the EU, for example, um, having agreements with countries like Libya and Turkey. We see Australia offshoring asylum seekers to, um, in the past, to Papua New Guinea and islands, which it claims are not part of its territory. And this is, you know, the U.S. doing um, the exact same thing. And it's it's not the first time. I mean, this kind of approach dates back to actually the 1980s in the U.S. and earlier policies that I've actually studied where the U.S. has intermittently um, tried to actually offload border enforcement to Mexico, leading to not only not necessarily a buildup at Mexico's southern border with Guatemala, but much more interior immigration enforcement and checkpoints, which all the research has shown has done very little to deter migrants, especially in the medium and long term. What it does is expose them to a lot more harm it makes their journeys much longer, more circuitous. And my own research, primarily that I've conducted down in Mexico and Guatemala, on um, the impact of a lot of these policies has, has been the proliferation of crimes um, that are committed against migrants with Mexico, in Mexico, with near total impunity. And while you know people say Mexico's laws on the books look pretty good, their asylum laws are technically more expansive than those of the U.S., they do have mechanisms in place to offer temporary humanitarian protection to migrants who experience crimes in Mexico. But in practice, because of pervasive corruption, impunity, more resources dedicated to deterring and deporting migrants, where that's the premium, it's sort of a conflict of interest. In reality, access to the, these mechanisms is, is very low. And so, you know, we've seen already some of the results of this. And so we look at the impact of policies like Title 42, like the migrant protection protocols, which many call remain in Mexico, which basically trap migrants in some of the most dangerous cities of, of, of northern Mexico as they're awaiting their turn to try to escape harm and oftentimes become victimized again um, in Mexico. And you see many organizations document thousands of different kinds of crimes and extortion and attacks against migrants who've been trapped in Mexico with very little access to protection or recourse. 
specifically with the expiration of, of Title 42, what kind of situations has this created on the border in recent weeks? What does it kind of look like on the ground there now? Right. And so obviously, I think that information is still emerging. What's interesting is that you know, we had this sort of media narrative of chaos, which I would argue is often manufactured in advance to justify the policies in our arsenal, which in many cases, you know, Title 42 was implemented or justified the fact that it was going to stem right chaos at the border. The impact was actually the reverse, where it actually created a humanitarian crisis, as I mentioned, in terms of people, shelters being overcrowded, people having no access to submit claims, crimes that were being committed against migrants by not just criminals and cartels, but by state officials and police alike. For example, we saw the devastating fire right, that happened in the detention facility in northern Mexico, all as a result of these particular entrapment policies. But what's interesting is in the last few days, at least from what I've been reading on the border, this sort of crisis hasn't materialized. And in fact, we've seen the numbers go down, which is sort of interesting um, to see. You know, some argue that, you know, we might have some increasing numbers at the borders in the coming weeks. Largely, you know, as a shift in these policies, sometimes communication within networks is not very smooth, right, of what's actually going on. You know, many people don't actually understand, right, these laws or policies, as well as simply relieving the bottleneck. So many believe that, you know, if these increases do materialize, they're likely to be quite short-lived. I think the concern that we're going to see is, you know, the way that people are going to be received back in Mexico will have some parallels to title to under Title 42 and remain in Mexico, or again, where they'll be sent back to Mexico. It depends which nationalities Mexico is willing to accept. But also the fact that these will never no longer be people that are expelled, right? So under Title 42, people are just kind of expelled across the border. And what happened is one, that there were no legal consequences, right? And so, you know, they weren't technically apprehended, right, or deported. So what happened is you had an increase in recrossings, right? The recidivism rate balloon through the roof. And so, again, creating this idea of crisis of numbers, right? But in many cases, these are the same people, right? Trying over and over again. But what Title Eight now processing is going to do is these will actually be rapid deportations, which carries much stiffer consequences for these migrants. And again, who often have valid protection claims under expedited removal, they can be subject to five or 10 year bars on reentry. You know, crossing unauthorized is only a misdemeanor. But again, if they are put into these proceedings, which this would do, recrossing could be charged as a felony. Um, and so now Mexico wouldn't just be receiving people who are expelled that are kind of in transit and maybe trying to try again, but deportees, um, which is a whole different kind of vulnerability that becomes attached to it, who are also extremely vulnerable to those who might take advantage of these individuals and their desperation and and being actually more trapped because, again, now that they have been put into the actually deportation process. And then how much of this is tied to the lack of broader immigration reform? Because it's been some time since there's mm -hmm. been kind of comprehensive reform on the level where something like this needs to be approached. How much of this is tied to the lack of, of that broader reform? It's it's all tied together, you know, and something that, that I've spoken about a little bit is, again, the lack of legal pathways. And again, some of these changes of, you know, there's proposals to open processing centers in, I think, Guatemala, 
I believe in Colombia might be the other place. Again, the idea that migrants can now have access to this app um, to make appointments, but they're very, very limited considering um, those who have real protection needs. And in fact, they don't help the most vulnerable, right? And so if you were afraid to report a, a crime to the police, right, or even to, you know, go anywhere in the country because the gangs might be following you, the last thing you're going to do is go to a processing center and say, um, you know, can you help me from the place that I'm already really fearful of? in the first place. Similarly, you know, those who are most vulnerable are those who might not have access to Wi-Fi, right, to use these kind of apps. I've heard they often don't work um, very well south of Mexico City, right, or in very remote areas that migrants are often pushed into because of Mexico's increasing enforcement landscape, right? So it's not like you could just traverse Mexico, right, and, and freely and get to the border, right? Mexico's kind of enforcement apparatus is really geared towards pushing people into the most dangerous places, both in places that might be controlled by cartels, jungles, deserts, you know, extremely inhospitable places, right? Places where an app may not really function to get one of a thousand appointments a day. You know, similarly, I think Biden put in, you know, some policies for humanitarian parole, specifically for Venezuelans, for Cubans, for Nicaraguans, for Haitians. But these are only limited to 30,000 a month. And everybody else, right, is now subject to these policies. And again, it privileges those who have a sponsor in the U.S., who have a valid passport, who can pay for their ability to even get on a plane, right, and, and come here and apply for those processes. And so, right, this is all related to the lack, right, of legal avenues that that we have and, and how minuscule they are. But I think another concern is also the deflection of what do we do for people who've been here for 20 or 30 years? You know, again, we haven't had any sort of revision of our immigration policies, no significant, you know, we've had countries that are, you know, given limited access to temporary protective status, you know, in some countries that's going on decades. This, again, doesn't deal with people fleeing new disasters. You often have to have arrived at a, before a certain date unless the country becomes recertified. And again, those don't have any pathway to permanent residency or to citizenship. You know, we've seen we're going to see some decisions come on DACA um, very soon, right? What happens to our young people who, you know, while those who are in the, the process before the rescission can still renew, but new applicants cannot. And I think what we often hear in this sort of immigration landscape on both sides of the aisle now is, you know, we can't have immigration reform until the border is secure, right? Which I would argue is a self-fulfilling fiction. Right. The metrics, how we know that are not very clear. You know, the practicality of sealing off the border is impossible, right, with one of our largest trading partners. So it's always kind of a political football that the border can never be secure enough. Hence, we cannot have that conversation. And so I think, you know, those two conversations are often related, but it's also deflecting against, you know, what are we doing for the people who've been living here and contributing to our communities also for a very long time? And then we've covered a lot of ground so far, but is there any are there any important points that we've missed in terms of, of Title 42 or kind of the broader immigration picture and how those tie together? You know, I think what's really important to note, and I think the the take home for policies like Title 42 and the asylum ban is that, you know, these are likely illegal, um, both under U.S. law as well as international law. And, you know, we are going to see these litigated already. I believe there's been lawsuits filed and these weren't not done in the name of public health. They are really ways to get a, that are eroding 
the asylum system, right? And people's access even have a claim. And many of these claims are meritorious. You know, even though there's some immigration judges with very kind of harsh track records, still the approval rate for those who go through their cases, right, in immigration court is still above 50%, right? Even given the fact that there's some judges that deny almost everybody, right? Nationally, we know that many of these people have ballot protection claims. And there's a scholar, David Fitzgerald, that I'm going to use his term. He calls this the catch-22 of asylum. Right. So once you reach a country's territory, you have the legal right to lodge a claim for asylum. The country doesn't have to grant it to you, but you have the right to do that. So what these policies do, in addition to a host of similar policies that have I mentioned been devised around the world, is they create this catch-22 because they're fully devised on preventing migrants from even having that chance to get there. Right. And in doing so, with also pushing out not just protection to other countries, but also enforcement in terms of deterrence and um, detention and, and deportation is that they're liberally placing people in harm's way again, right? So these are people already fleeing various forms of persecution in their home countries who are now because they are vulnerable, right? Have limited avenues to move. The very few, at least in Mexico, protection avenues they have are beset by corruption, overcrowding, limited availability. These are ripe opportunities for exploitation as well. And so then you have people additionally victimized, right, on their routes to attempt to um, receive protection from the violence that they were fleeing in the first place. And I think, you know, the last take home is I think we have a misconstrue, right, of what people are fleeing, right? These causes are often interlinked, but in many of the cases, especially the ones that I'm most familiar with, are fleeing various forms of violence, persecution, instability. And I think, you know, if we think about our own role in the United States, and especially if we think about our role towards Central America, much of South America, right, the U.S. is, is directly complicit, right, in a lot of these destabilized environments in the very countries where people are fleeing, right? And said we sort of wash our hands of saying, right, not our responsibility. But I think it's really important to note the legacy of U.S. military intervention, support of violent governments, and, and very recently, um, destructive economic policies, which are ravishing livelihoods and the climate that are all propelling people to leave. And so I think it's really important that we also not just tie what's going on at the border to our larger immigration policies, but also to our foreign policy decisions as well. That's it for this week of Radio Ed. If you found this episode interesting, make sure to check out some of the work Galemba is doing at the newly launched Center for Immigration Policy and Research at Corbell. It focuses primarily on immigrant populations from Latin America and the Rocky Mountain West and associated transnational dynamics of migration along three interrelated pillars, social, economic, and law and politics. A link to their website is available in the show notes. Galemba also released a book earlier this spring called Laboring for Justice, The Fight Against Wage Theft in an American City, which highlights the experiences of day laborers and advocates in the struggle against wage theft here in Denver. It's available wherever you buy your books and includes a series of contributors from DU and around the city. As this is our season finale, we have a couple more things to cover before we sign off. I'm going to switch out of my broadcast voice for this. We're saying goodbye to our production assistant, Deborah Hasha. She's been a wonderful addition to our team, and we'll keep her around if we could. Um, sadly, she's graduating in a couple weeks, and she'll be a tremendous addition to wherever she ends up next. I know I speak for my co-host, Emma Atkinson, in saying that we'll miss her and that we wish her luck. We know she'll be able to accomplish great things, and we wouldn't be surprised to see her in a director's chair of a major movie someday. We're also saying goodbye to Tamara Chapman, who's our managing editor and the director of strategic publications, marketing, and communications at DU. She's retiring this summer, and she's an institution unto herself. She's tremendously nice and so humble that we had to leave this out of the initial script for fear of her removing it with her mighty red pen. We're going to start by bringing Emma to share our thanks to Tamara. 
a million thanks to Tamara. She's been integral to the production of this podcast and even more integral to our entire communications team here at DU. She's a ray of sunshine in the office, and we're happy to see her every single day. DU comms isn't DU comms without Tamara Chapman, and we're going to miss her dearly. Tamara, we love and appreciate you, and to say that we're sad to see you go is the understatement of the century. Tamara, I'm a better writer, content creator, and person for having the distinct pleasure of working with you. We're going to miss you, but I know we're all excited to hear about your next big adventure. Time to put the broadcasting voice back on and to play that outro music. Thanks again to Rebecca Galemba at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies for lending her expertise on this complicated subject. Also, thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen to one, some, or all of the episodes in this season. We appreciate you letting us be part of your busy lives. See you all next fall for season four. I'm Matt Meyer, and this is Radio Ed.